0: Joseph has this dream, two dreams. The first dream is he has this dream of sheaves of grain. And there's 11 sheaves of grain, and they're bowing down to his sheave of grain. And so it's, obviously it's his brothers bowing down to him. Now when he tells the dreams to his brothers, They hate him even more. This word hate is absolute vile abhorrence of something. It's not just a hate like little kids saying, you're not my friend anymore, or I don't like you, or I hate that show. This is like, I'm willing to kill you kind of a hate, which they will. So it becomes obvious that the first dream is about, now grain is very important because grain is the basis for life. And so the idea of, one, the grain is foreshadowing the famine that's going to come along and that Joseph is going to save them through grain. It also talks about the idea that their life is going to be utterly dependent upon him and then their life is bowing down and submitting to him. And so it knows how they immediately understand the meaning of the dream. Joseph doesn't interpret this dream. He interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. He interprets the two dreams of Pharaoh, but he doesn't interpret this dream. The sons actually, the brothers actually interpret the dream. So you're almost wondering if the ability to interpret dreams is just a family thing. And so in this sense, their ability to interpret dreams is almost as equal to Joseph's ability to interpret dreams, even though we don't usually think of it that way because he does it more often than they do. But if you really pay attention, they're the ones doing the interpreting and they're right. And then Jacob is going to interpret the second dream, and he's right. So it seems to be a family thing that God is working through the family and not just through Joseph and this ability to interpret. The second dream is that there's 11 stars, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowing down to his star. Now, obviously, the sun refers to Jacob. The moon refers to Leah, not Rachel, because he says, does, Jacob says, you think your mom and I are going to bow down to you? Well, it can't be Rachel because Rachel's not his mom and Rachel's dead, so she can't bow down. So Jacob tells you that the moon is actually Leah, which means Rachel doesn't make it the vision of God. Now, that could be somewhat intentional because Rachel's not alive, so that makes sense. But what's interesting is that the woman in book the Revelation is going to be standing on the moon and the sun and the 12 stars. So you will see this image pop up a second time in the book of Revelation. And Jacob tells you right here that it refers to the 12 tribes, which means when you get to Revelation, that's Israel. It's a symbol of Israel. And so it becomes obvious. It's not Mary, like the Catholics say, because Jacob told you it's Israel, not Mary. Okay, So you have to go back, but Revelation, that's a whole other story. But the only way you can understand Revelation is by reading the entire Bible, specifically the prophets, not watching the news. That will not help you interpret Revelation, even though everybody in the 50s and 60s and 70s did it that way. This is the two dreams. Now, knows he tells his father this time. And his father even says, who do you think you are? are you, I'm the patriarch. Yes, I might be appointing you as a firstborn son, but the son is never greater than the father, period. Even the book of Hebrews makes that point. But then it says Jacob pondered these things, because maybe he remembers all the other dreams that keep showing up in his family, that keep talking about God, specifically the two nations. Remember the two nations that are war with each other going to Rebekah and Isaac about Jacob and Esau, and Isaac did not pay attention to the dream and it got him in trouble. And now Jacob is not paying attention to this dream and maybe he goes home and as he has a chance to let his emotions settle and think about it, he's like, oh, wait a minute. The last time we had a vision-like dream and was ignored, a lot of bad things happened. Do I want to do the same thing my father did? And he begins to ponder these things. Now, is Joseph telling his dreams like, hey, Look at me, I'm better than you. Or is he telling the dreams of, I had a dream from God, and I want to share that with you. Don't know. Now, it could be seen as very ignorant, because what stupid kid doesn't know after his brothers hate him so much that this is going to really increase the hatred more? So he's really dumb, which doesn't seem likely compared to what he's like everywhere else. Or he's just saying, I'm going to show you, even God chose me. Or it could be that this is from God. And he sees it from God. And he's thinking, now maybe you'll like me because God has chosen me. It's not just God, dad favoring me. God has chosen me. And so like me now, I'm from God. I don't know. But like I said, I have a hard time seeing the first In light of less than a year later, he becomes the person that he is in Potiphar's home. But here's the other thing. He tells his father. That would be incredibly disrespectful against his father. That would pretty much ostracize him from his father completely, who is very obvious throughout the story that's probably the one person he really loves other than Benjamin because he's the only person that ever loved him. And so it's very unlikely that he would go up to his father in an arrogant kind of way like that and risking being excommunicated from the tribe because of a blatant disrespect for his father. That would be a big no-no. But here's the other thing you must understand. In the ancient world, everybody believed that every dream was from the gods. Everybody believed that when you dreamt, your mind connected to the spiritual realm, where the dead and the spirit and the gods dwell. And that when you, your brain connected, it connected that world, and all those images of that world begin to flood in your head. And of course, they don't make sense, because this is the language of the gods, and this is the language of the spiritual realm, and that kind of stuff. But they believed that every single one of your dreams was automatically connected to the spiritual realm. Or the gods in some kind of way. Now, in some ways, you would probably ignore a lot of them because you're like, I can't figure it out anyways. But there are actually people who went to, got their equivalent of a master's degree and just how to figure out what dreams are saying to tell you what your dream meant so that you can know what the gods were trying to tell you. And we're going to see this when we get to Pharaoh. He has professionally trained scholars who spent their entire life studying dreams from the gods to try to figure out what the gods are trying to say to us. And even today, people get master's degrees in what your dreams are saying because that's a popular view today. Carl Jung and um, Abraham Abraham Maslow, you know him from the, um, I just want to blank on the, yeah, the pyramid. He was a New Ageist person who believed that we're all God and we're all connected to God. And, and when our brain goes in subconscious mode, God is the, the God force is speaking to us. And so he believed that. That's a very common view among psychologists today. And so you have to understand that if they automatically think that way and they all, all of a sudden are able to interpret the dream, then it says something that everybody should have some kind of a sense that Yahweh has given him this. And so it could be more of Joseph speaking as a prophet, God has spoken to me, than a, hey, I'm better than you. Because remember, so far everybody has acted as a prophet Mm -hmm. in this family. Everybody has acted as a prophet in this family. And so it could be Joseph acting as a prophet more Which would be interesting because these 11 stars are rejecting the prophet, just like the 11 stars of all future Israel are going to reject all the prophets of God and kill them. So it could be a foreshadowing of Israel's future and what they do. Who knows? These are just guesses trying to figure out things based on contextual evidence. So they don't like them. They hate them. Now, they go out shepherding the flocks. They're 40-something-plus miles away from home. That's not uncommon for shepherds to travel that far away from home to try. Because when Israel is not producing a lot of green, sheep, large flocks, the large flocks of 11 different people all grazing in the same place, are going to lawnmower that field down really fast. So they're going to keep moving and moving and moving and moving. And so first they go to Shechem. And the father says, hey, go see what's going on with the sons. Now, Jacob is sending Joseph off by himself to be with the brothers by himself. Is he seriously that ignorant of how much they hate him? Or is he really just, that apathetic. We don't know why he would be risking that. So they go up to Shechem. He goes up to Shechem to find them and that immediately puts the <laughs> spine tingle down your back like ooh, that's not good. We remember what happened there. But then he finds out they're not there and they're actually up in Dotham which is another 14 miles away and so he goes up to Dotham and all this is like, you're like okay, what's the point? Just have him get there. The point is is that the narrator is drawing this out to make you feel the fact that Joseph is getting further and further and further and further further away from home. So that when he screams out for help, there's no one to hear him. And so it begins to foreshadow the absolute disconnection from any type of police force, so to speak. That could come in and rescue him. And even though the narrator isn't going to tell us that he cried out for help in chapter 37, later, when their brothers are standing before Joseph and not knowing it's Joseph, they're going to talk about them ignoring the screams and the cries of Joseph. So that tells us that he was crying out, and what person would not be. And so this gives silence to his cries. And so what you're going to be doing is we're walking back into a Cain and Abel scenario where the brothers are going to show how evil they really are by their willingness to kill their own brother just like Cain killed Abel. And there was no one to hear the cries of Abel and all there was was the blood that cried out to God. And so we see that. Now when he comes closer, they see him in the distance and notice what they say. They don't say, here comes our brother, the spoiled little brat. They say, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him and see what happens to those dreams. Now that's key. Because what the narrator is showing you here is, this has more to do with their opposition to God's will than their hatred for their brother. At best, they don't know that the dreams come from God, but they're unintentionally killing the will of God. Now, we know that they're not really, but if they're killing the dreamer who has prophesied God's will, then that means that if he dies, God's will dies, and they're the ones responsible for that. So, at best, this is like manslaughter, where they're unintentionally killing the will of God, but they're still killing the will of God. Now, I only say that if they actually succeeded, that would be the result, but they don't because nothing can stop the Word of God. And that's what the story is about. But if they do understand that these dreams are for God, and they do understand that they had this unique ability to interpret dreams, which they haven't really been interpreting in all other dreams, then they are consciously aware that this is from God, which means they are consciously aware of, here comes the one God chose. Let's kill them and see how God can pull those plans off. Now, that's not too shocking when we've seen them use the Abrahamic covenant to slaughter people. And it's not too shocking when you see Reuben do what he does. So in some ways, it's like, wow, that's how evil this chosen nation has become? I can't believe it. But in the context of the story, you're kind of like, I really hope that's not what their heart is, but I kind of can believe it. But we don't know for sure, because once again, the narrator is silent on his commentary. But if you put it together, that is what could possibly be there. Which shows you what has really truly happened to these people. Now, in other ways, too, this shouldn't shock you too much. Because as this people grows and grows and grows and grows and becomes an entire nation, eventually we're going to be told that they become worse than the world and the Canaanites. So, this could just be foreshadowing. Of what we should be expecting over and over and over again. But that's their desire. is to kill the dreamer and the dreams. Notice they don't say Joseph the spoiled brat who dad loves more. The focus is on the dream. The will of God. And that's what they attack. Now Reuben comes in as the Superman hero. He's going to save the day. And he shows up and he says, no, 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 no. We can't kill our brother. Let's just throw him in the pit. Now, the pit is a cistern. It's a tear-shaped like, hole in the ground. So it has a hole about the size of a traditional European well opening. But instead of the well going straight down shaft into an underground river, it's a, just a tear-shaped carving in the hole in the ground, carved into bedrock and it rains for about three months in Israel's uh, year, and that fills up, and then they roll a stone over the top of that, and with no sunlight, no air, all the bacteria dies, and the water becomes purified, and the dirt settles at the bottom, and then you can cut it, open it up, and you have purified drinking water. And that's only the water that you have for the rest of the entire year, because the rain literally only comes in about three months around November, December, through March, and February, something like that, depending on the year. Now, what happens is Israel only has about a foot of soil. And once you get below that foot, it's just solid bedrock. And so you have to chisel those things out. So the more money you have, the bigger your cistern is. And eventually, over time, is because that's bedrock. I mean, we're talking like hundreds of years. The ground is always shifting, and eventually that cistern cracks, and it can't hold water anymore. And This is what Jeremiah refers to as, we are broken cisterns. We can't hold water anymore, and therefore we're useless. Now, over the years, sediment in the water has settled down to the bottom, and when dirt has been in water for a very long time, it turns to muck. And if you want to know what that feels like, go to Buckeye Lake and just jump in and walk around in Buckeye Lake, and your foot sinks in about two feet into muck. And when you pull your foot out after an hour of swimming, it's yellow. And so that begins what happened. Now, a couple things would happen. They would scoop all this muck out. Eventually, they would clean it every once in a while. But once it breaks, who cares about cleaning it? They would scoop it all out, and they would carve steps on the side, and they would turn it into a cistern. Or, sorry, a wine press. Cool, dark place, great for making wine. Or they would turn it into a dungeon. And they would leave it with all the muck. They might even use it as a latrine. And then it becomes a dungeon and they would throw you in there. And it meant that you can't get out because you're standing in muck and feces and you can't really sit down. So it's a real prison, no cable television, okay, in a library. And it becomes a dungeon. And so, and it could be with the muck or without the muck. It just depends on how nice your dungeon keeper feels. And so they throw him down into this thing, and that's where he is. And so Reuben says, let's throw him down in there with the intention of saving him later. So he can't stop them from killing them, but he can come in when they are not paying attention and save them. Now, what's interesting is that Reuben leaves. Reuben leaves. What kind of a savior kind of just tucks you away a little bit and then leaves? So when the brothers finally come to the decision of what they're going to do with him, there is no Reuben. Where is he? Why is it that all the brothers are there except for him? He leaves. So the point is, just like before, he is a failed savior. And even when he comes back, the question is, did Reuben actually care about Joseph? Because when he comes back, the first thing he says is, what's going to happen to me now once my father finds out what happened to him. Could it be that Reuben doesn't really care about Joseph? He's only saving Joseph so he can go to his dad and say, hey, look at me. I saved your favorite son. Make me the firstborn son. Aren't I deserving of it? Ignore how I slept with your wife. This will make good. It could be that. In fact, you're going to see that over and over story where he really wants to be liked by his dad. And so you see this failed savior who seems to be more interested in looking good before his father. He doesn't say, oh my gosh, I can't believe what just happened to my brother. He says, what's going to happen to me? And that's what you fail to see. So they're eating lunch. Why is it down there? And Reuben is God knows where. And finally, these Ishmaelites slash Midianites, at this point we've learned that one son of Abraham, the Ishmaelites, and the other son, Midian, have begun to merge together, and they're becoming a group of people that live close together. And they're going to be fully merged together when we get to Moses' time, and Moses and marries into the Midianite Amishmalites, a part of that. And so they come by, and this is when Judas steps up, and Judas says, "Let's not kill him, for after all, he is our brother, and we would have blood on our hands. Let's sell him into slavery." Now Judah's a little bit better because Judah actually becomes a true savior in a sense that he actually comes with a plan to keep Joseph alive and follows through with that plan. He acknowledges that this is our brother. Let's not be evil like Cain is. And he acknowledges that it is a crime that they don't want to be held accountable for. But at the same time you're selling him into slavery. So you kind of wonder, like, is he better? I mean, because in the ancient world, slavery, if you sell yourself into slavery to people the same kind, it's usually due to bankruptcy, and you're probably going to be taken care of very well, and in six years, you'll be free. But if you're a foreigner being sold into slavery to a very powerful, wealthy nation... Is still the slavery is way better than our slavery in American history and not as demonic and evil. But you're still a foreigner enslaved to a powerful nation, which means it's not going to be the same as bankruptcy. So the reality is there's not really a true value in the love for his brother. And so you're really wondering about Judah and where he is on this thing. And so Judah sells him. So they sell him for money. And so they rip his coat off, and they bloody it with the blood of a goat. And they bring it back to the father, and they lie to him. And they lie to him, and they tell him, Look, some wild animal killed your son, and we brought back his bloody coat. Now here's the irony. Jacob deceived his father with goat's hair. And now he's being deceived with goat's hair. He reaps what he sows. Just like he deceived his father, now his sons are deceiving him. And so he gets deceived, and now he mourns, and the chapter ends with the sense that Jacob's mourning is never going to end. Normally people mourn for a period of time, and then they move on, but he swears that he'll never stop mourning which is going to make him a really fun dad to live with for the next several years. And so Joseph is in slavery. And what got him in trouble? His coat. Now, his father gave him this coat. This is why I forgot to mention. It is not a coat of many colors. It's a bad translation based on the bad translation of the King James. There's nowhere. We have no idea what this word really truly means. Many scholars have pointed to the fact that the only other time that this word appears is in Samuel, connected to the coat that a princess wears to mark the fact that she's royalty. So it seems to be that this coat is definitely connected to the idea of marking somebody as in charge, as the head. Some, there might be this sense that it could be connected to an Akkadian word, that has the idea of richly ornamented, meaning that there could be tassels on the robe that are hanging off, and they're knotted in such a way that that knot tells the genealogy of the family, like the, the plaid striping of a kilt of the Scots, and that it would, the knotting the would mark him as the firstborn son, all the more reason for them to hate him more. Other than that we don't really know what this word means, but it definitely does not communicate colors because they just don't have a rainbow technicolor kind of a ability back then to weave something like that. It could be colors, but we're talking about like maybe reds and browns and tans and dark reds, like animal fur red. And so, but whatever it is, it marks him with some kind of seniority. And so this coat gets him in trouble which is very important because when we get to Potiphar's wife, his coat is going to get him in trouble again. And you're going to see these themes here going on. So that brings us to chapter 38. And the story of the narrator pauses and goes to Jude, and you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't fit. But it does.